Hey there, podcast listener. Do you have a business that you want more people to learn about? Well, I am offering special sponsorship deals for the Knowledge is Power podcast. And if you don't want to go out and spend a lot of money, that's no problem. We have monthly subscription sponsorships available. We have three spots open per episode, a pre-roll, mid-roll, and an end-roll starting at $20 a month. And if you'd like to do a full sponsorship for an episode, contact me at knowledgeispowerri at gmail.com. For other information, visit kip-pod.com and contact me on the website if you are interested in taking out a sponsorship spot. So thanks for tuning in, everybody, and enjoy the episode. Stay hungry. Stay foolish. We choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other thing, not because they are easy, but because they are hard. I have a dream. We we'll one day live in a nation where they will not be judged by the color of their skin, but by the content of their character. Hello and welcome back to the Knowledge is Power podcast. I'm your host, Max Willett, and uh, we're going to be staying on the politics train in this episode. I'm very excited. You know, I enjoy listening to politics and hearing about uh, the local issues going on in Rhode Island, and we have another great guest for that today. So if you want to go ahead and introduce yourself, that would be great. Cool. I'm Caswell Cook. I live in Westerly, and I'm running for Senate District 38 uh very cool so i appreciate you taking time out of your day um and uh coming on the podcast so uh i would love to hear sort of your life story you know let's go back you know uh and talk about you know your past where you grew up and how you got to this point in your life you got an hour <laughs> yeah yeah absolutely <laughs> well i'm i'm 48 years old i'm married to my wife christine I have uh, two daughters, Maddie, who's 12, Leah, who's 14, and my stepson, Louis, who's 15. Um, I've lived in Westerly pretty much my whole life. My family was from here. I was actually born in New York City because my mom graduated from Westerly High School, married my dad here, then they moved to New York City. I was actually born there, but I think by the time I was two, we were back in Westerly. Um, went to St. Pius uh, in Westerly, the school. And then I went to Prout in Wakefield in high school, first class of boys. So there was like 300 girls and eight boys. Good odds. And uh, I think I went to senior prom three times. Um, (laughs) And then I went to uh, Boston University and majored in history and political science. And then um, lived a little bit. I think I went I I think I tried the Disney thing when I was in my 20s. And and I think I lasted three months working at the great movie ride. and then I came back to uh, to Westerly, where I've been most of my life um, in this vicinity, at least, you know, the last uh, in my adult life, for sure. So here is where I am. And then um, I uh, grew up singing in the chorus of Westerly uh, under the great George Kent, started when I was eight years old and also the choir at Christ Church in Westerly. I did that for years. And now actually I'm back in the chorus and my daughter sings in the chorus, which is kind of cool. So it's like a tradition. Yeah. Um, First ran for office when I was uh, 28, ran for town council in 2002, and I won by two votes. 
and then I've been I was elected um, six times, and then I ran for state rep in uh, eight years ago against Sam Azanaro, and uh, it was really close. It was like a fifty-one forty-nine thing, but I lost. I think losing was actually the best thing that happened. Um, then I took four years and um, did not do politics, and then four years ago. I got back in and got on the town council for the last two times. And now I'm running for uh, state Senate. I was planning on going out and, and doing nothing for a while, maybe waiting for as to retire. But then all of a sudden, Senator Dennis Algier, who has been here for 30 years as our Senator, he decided he was retiring. So I said, well, this is the time, man, let's do it. So it's not just Westerly for my district anymore. It's, it's mm -hmm. um, the Senate district is all of Westerly, which is about 80% of the population of the district. And then it's a good chunk of Charlestown. It's kind of a weird shaped map. It goes up around Burlingame and then it goes like south of Route 1 and then it stops before Matunic and jumps up into like a few streets in South Kingstown. So it's mm -hmm. it actually encompasses a portion of those two towns as well as the whole town of Westerly. So that's kind of, um, you know, the the short version of everything. I, uh, I've, I've done a lot of stuff in town. I've been on the board of trustees of the Westerly Library in Wilcox Park. Um, I'm the executive director of the Musquamica Business Association, which I founded 23 years ago. So we do Spring Fest, Fall Fest. We created a drive-in movie theater here that we run all season. I own a restaurant called the Haven Express in the summertime. Um, I sell real estate with Berkshire Hathaway. I uh, wrote a book and I did two documentaries. There you go. <laughs> Very cool. Yeah. Well, I was on your website and that that was it's incredible. I, I was like, man you know, what else could this guy do? And then I didn't see that you wrote a book. And I was like, holy crap, you wrote a book. <laughs> you know, and, and I'm recording an album because I said three oh. things I wanted to do. I wanted to record an album with my band. I wanted to write a book and I wanted to, uh, to direct and produce a documentary, which we did two of those actually. But um, so yeah, the album's next. Those are my bucket list things. Very cool. Uh, so uh, I would love to hear, you know, sort of what made you want to get into politics when you first ran when you were 28 years old? It says on your website, you know, what sort of inspired you to want to get into that career? Well, my grandma, Margaret uh, Phelps Cook, later Spear. Um, my dad's mom, she was she was actually a lot older to be my grandma. She was born in 1900, which which you oh, think wow. about it's the year. It's the year 2020. And my grandma was born in 1900. Yeah. Um, but she was in her 40s when she had my dad. Mm -hmm. He was like the baby of six. So she was older. So like when I was born, she was already like 74 years old. But she lived to be 92. So I at least had her for the first 18 years of my life. Mm -hmm. And she would tell me about people in our family history going back to the revolution that were involved. Like um, first Surgeon General of the United States on George Washington's staff. There was a senator from Ohio. There was a lieutenant governor from um, Connecticut. There was uh, a signer of the Declaration of Independence. There was... Um, her grandfather was DA of New York City. It, it was kind of like this thing where maybe it's in the blood. I don't know. I don't know. That's obviously not true. But it just mm -hmm. she kind of instilled the public service thing into me and said our family had done that for a long time. That was there. And then when I went to um, Boston University, I got a job working at the Kennedy School of Government at Harvard. And I was the audiovisual guy. And every week it was somebody. I mean, I remember my first week, it was Ted Turner and Jane Fonda. I mean, Ted Turner, who created CNN, Jane Fonda, the actress. Uh, but it would be like Al Gore. It'd be like Dan Rather or Tom Brokaw from the news. It would it would be like every JFK Jr., Teddy Kennedy, 
this prime minister. And I was just like, holy man. And I got to listen and absorb these people's speeches, Ross Perot, all, all these cool people. And over those four years, it was pretty amazing. And then I did two internships in college through BU. I went to uh, London and I worked for a member of the British Parliament as an intern, which was totally cool. Mm. And one day there was an event um, where Margaret Thatcher, the former prime minister of Britain, was speaking. And I got to listen to her in person speak and I got to talk to her and meet her. And that was like amazing. And then the following year, I interned for a congressman in D.C. and just got to work at the U.S., you know, at the, at the Capitol. And I got to just be a part of, you know, fly on the wall kind of thing. Just, just I was just an intern. But there's Bob Dole. There's John McCain. There's, you know, this senator, that senator. There's Bill Clinton. There's, I mean, it was just everybody was there. And it was just like I just absorbed it. So I started doing this little public access show and interviewing like, you know, has been rock stars and whatever. I just I had fun with it. Free backstage passes to the Beach Boys kind of thing, you know. Um, but I also would interview some politicians. And when I was in D.C., I was like, well, there's Bob Dole. There's this one. There's that one. Let's interview him. So we did. Newt Gingrich. I don't care who it was. I interviewed him both sides of the aisle. So when the 2000 presidential campaign happened, it was uh, ended up being Gore, Al Gore against George Bush, the younger. But during the primary, there was a ton of candidates. And um, I had asked if I could interview them. And most of them said no, of course, because who's this kid from Westerly with a public access show? Mm -hmm. But John McCain's people said, come on up. So we went to New Hampshire and spent three days riding around on his bus called the Straight Talk Express. And he was known in 2000 as like very accessible to the media. Um, and he was running for president of the United States, you know, Vietnam War hero, uh, senator for many, many, many years. Obviously, he was a presidential nominee in 2008, lost to Obama. But um, so in 2000, it was him versus Bush, pretty much. So there I was on the Straight Talk Express and and McCain's like, all right, kid, your turn. And we had like the most fun time. Like I got to our interview was hilarious. I got to dub it from like VHS tape over it so I can get it online because it's like a waste sitting in my basement. Um, but he was so cool. And he, he said, I, I'm running for president because I want to inspire a generation of Americans to commit themselves to causes greater than their own self-interest. And I want to reform government. And I just said, wow, like, that's just such a message. And he said, the only way you can do it and help is if you go back to your town and run for local office. Long and short of it is I went home and I ran for town council. So wow. John McCain, the answer, the, the short answer, the long answer to your question is John McCain. And then I stayed in touch with him, uh, especially through Senator Chafee, who was then Governor Chafee. So when he would come around, I'd, I'd go and you know see him and talk to him. And then in 2008, and I was a delegate for him in 2000 and 2008 at the convention. But in 2008, um, I was vice chair of the Rhode Island McCain campaign. So when he came to Rhode Island, I got to introduce him on stage. And that was it was one of those ladies and gentlemen, the next president of the United States, John McCain. It was hilarious. It was fun. It was thrilling. And then he lost. Uh, <laughs> but, but but it was it was just cool. So like. You know, I was I was a McCain type of Republican for a long, long time. Mm -hmm. I'm running as an independent now, but 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 he's kind of my one of my heroes. Very cool. That that's that's an incredible story. You know, that's, yeah. that's very cool I'm, that to to meet somebody like that, you know, with his reputation. And that's incredible. Uh, so and a, and a great person to look up to in politics, I think, as well. Mm. They don't make them like that anymore. And. You know, he worked across the aisle with Teddy Kennedy and with uh, Russ Feingold on campaign finance reform. And 
you know, he, uh, he had a little temper sometimes, Mm -hmm. um, but he was just such a straight talker. And I, when I lost that election a few years ago, I mean, I used to always worry about what I said. Oh, you know, I'm on the town council. I better not say this or that or offend this person or that. But finally I said, screw it. You know, (laughs) if you just don't say what you mean, I hate people that talk like in this hyperbole and they're like, if I'm elected, I will, you know, it's a stop it. My whole thing is, look, I've been on the town council 16 years. I'm the only person running for this seat that has any experience in government. Mm -hmm. So I've got a record of 16 years. Are there votes I took that are probably where where they may be wrong or would I have taken a different vote now than I did 15 years ago? Sure. I'm sure my opponents will dig those up. Um, But I mean, I always say there's no Republican or Democratic way to pave a street. You just got to get it done. So that's what I've done. Yeah, that's what I've done. And I've just tried to, you know, a little straight talk uh, like my buddy, John McCain. Well, he wasn't my buddy, but my acquaintance, John McCain, and um, just go from there. So that's what I do. Great. So, uh, you know, also, you know, we've you talked about some of the other things you you've done. So I'd like to just sort of go over every single one. And then later on in the conversation, maybe we can get deeper into them. So uh, let's talk about your book, because I uh looked at it on Amazon and it's quite an interesting title and, and something that I honestly didn't expect when I clicked on it to be about what it's about. So if you want to explain, you know, the, your book and why you decided to write it, that'd be amazing. Yeah. I mean, um, it's called the, um, um, <laughs> the death and resurrection of the Episcopal church, how to save a church in decline is the subtitle. It, so the Episcopal Church is obviously one of many denominations in America. It's it's kind of Catholic and Protestant. So, mm-hmm. you know, when we think of Catholic, we think of Roman Catholic or maybe Greek Orthodox. But there's also Anglo-Catholic. So if you looked at the Queen's funeral, that's the Episcopal Church. I mean, that's the okay. Anglican Church, the Church of England. But in America, it's known as the Episcopal Church. So the Archbishop of Canterbury, the smells, the bells, the processions, that's the Episcopal Church, the Anglican Church. When you see the funerals at the Washington National Cathedral uh, for the presidents and stuff, that's an Episcopal Church. Um, maybe we're the unofficial official church of America, because America doesn't have an official church. But the Episcopal Church has kind of just been one of those, a smaller denomination, but with a lot of influence, shall I say. And it's, it's similar, you know, in nature to the Congregational Church, the Presbyterians, the Methodists came off of the Episcopal Church. Um, so all churches since probably the late 60s have been experiencing decline in America for whatever reason. You know, it's just the world we live in. Less people go to church, less people are religious, mm-hmm. less people go to synagogues, less people go to, you know. So I've always been an Episcopalian. I, Christ Church is right downtown next to the town hall. And I've watched over the years as the Episcopal Church, I think membership peaked at 3.6 million back in the 60s, and it's down to like 1.7. I mean, that's that's half the membership gone in 50 years. I mean, people are dying and then not getting replaced. So I decided I'm not a priest. I'm not a, you know, I'm not a, not a really religious person like in that respect. But I looked at it from a practical sense and said, why is sort of mainline Protestant religion or denominations, why are they dying? Why are the Presbyterians, Methodists, Congregationalists, Episcopalians, Lutherans, why is it just tanking? And so I just kind of, I decided to travel around to some churches around the country, some that were awesome. Uh, St. Martin's Houston, Texas has 10,000 members. It's the church that George Bush and Barbara Bush attended, James Baker. 
fact, when I went there a couple of years ago, it was before Barbara died. and There she was a couple of pews ahead of us. They got money, they got people. It's amazing. Uh, and then I'd go to a church that's got like, you know, 16 people in the pews on a Sunday. Um, and I became in my church in Westerly, um, it's kind of a democracy, really, the Episcopal Church. We elect our leaders and we pick our priests. We, we hire them. We don't like they don't get appointed. Um, so I'm what they call the senior warden of the vestry, which in English means I'm the chairman of the board. <laughs> <laughs> and I have been for the last couple of years uh, at Christ Church. So I just, you know, I, I wrote this book. It's practical. I, I think that the Episcopal Church has become, just like most of those denominations, very um, political. And I think when you when your religion or your denomination and you start preaching politics from the pulpit, you're going to alienate half of your membership and maybe engage half of your membership. And so I've always said there's got to be a via, a via media, a middle way, which is you don't need to stand up in your pulpit on sunday and preach about gun control you don't need to stand up in your pulpit on sunday and preach about you know these these polarizing issues like the 2016 election i want to go to church to get away from that and you know the episcopal church has decided back back in the 50s they used to joke that we were the republican party at prayer you know i mean the vanderbilts and all these families they were all in the episcopal church and it was very kind of waspy kind of you know, upper crust Republican. Well, now it's become like the Demo the, the progressive Democrats at prayer, which is just as bad as the as Absolutely, being, yeah. it shouldn't be either. It should mm -hmm. be a neutral a neutral place, or as people like to say, a neutral space, uh, a neutral place to 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 go to church. So that's what my book's about. It's about knock it off. Um, the Episcopal Church welcomes you. It doesn't mean it welcomes you. Oh, and by the way, we have to make sure that you know you're welcome. It welcomes you encompasses everyone. We don't have to get into subgroups, culture wars, subcategories. Just welcome everybody and knock it off. We're, we're the church that women are priests. Uh, people can have same-sex unions. We, we, we do it all. It's great. Now, knock it off and move on. We, we allow mm -hmm. it. Now, stop mm -hmm. harping on it. Just let's get to, let's get to work. But they, they just can't do that. The leadership of the church can't do that. So that's what my book's about. It's very critical of the leadership. I interviewed people on both sides of the aisle. I interviewed Tucker Carlson from Fox News because he's an Episcopalian. Um, so I got his view. And then I interviewed like uh, Father Alberto QDA from Florida. And I went to his church and spoke. He's great. And he, he used to be Roman Catholic, wanted to get married. So he became Episcopalian. So, you know, um, but and he does... Uh, 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 Spanish language uh, television shows. And so it was kind of like, I wanted to get people on all sides of the spectrum. In fact, his church is probably the most diverse church in the Episcopal church in the United States and Florida, because it's got people from all the different islands. A lot of them are from islands that were run by Britain. So they grew up being Anglican slash Episcopalian. Mm -hmm. So it was really interesting to go there and bring my message to a group of people that are so wide ranging. Um, and I, so I, before the pandemic, I started speaking and going to different churches and talking about the book. And then the pandemic happened. And so I just updated the book post pandemic because now churches have to worship online and it's become a hybrid now. And we were pretty much at the forefront at our place here in Westerly of the week after the pandemic, when they shut everything down, we were online and now we do a hybrid where, um, you know, um, half of, half of our congregation watches online every week from all over and the other half is in the pew 
so that's kind of the book and uh i've probably sold a whopping you know 1200 copies <laughs> that's still more than i've sold and i have you know that i haven't written a book so that's that i mean listen that message is amazing because not only does it apply to the episcopal church it applies to a lot of other things how things are being politicized and ruined when they really shouldn't be you know it's like just like i remember the comedian rick ricky gervais when he had that when he uh, i can't remember at some useless award shows for movies or something yeah ricky, he, ricky gervais yeah yeah the yeah. british guy he, he created yep. the office yep yep but he was having that speech uh man it was i think it was right before covid and he said you know you all you actors have you know no right you know uh lecturing the public on your political beliefs get up here thank your god thank your agent and f get off the hell out of here <laughs> yeah yeah you know and i mean that that couldn't be more true you know and it just that I want to read your book now and I might buy it because I didn't really know that's what it was about. And I'm very interested in, in reading it because, you know, poetry, you know, life is as it repeats itself. Things repeat itself over and over and over again. Everything is very similar and and how things fall and 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 get destroyed. And that, I think, perfectly sums up why a lot of things are being ruined nowadays is because movies and and culture in general is getting politicized when really people just want to go to the movie theater and get entertained you know and yeah well you know i think america is okay with it because look at top gun mm. there's no politics there's yeah. no oh my God. there's none yep. of, there's none of that stuff it's a, just a good action flick yep with tom cruise absolutely and sometimes sometimes not every single movie has to be a cause and not every single thing we do has to be, you know, sometimes you just, you know, people do have a daily life. They're not mm -hmm. always thinking about these polarizing issues. And, you know, one of the reasons I ran as an independent is because I'm just sick of it. I'm sick of the fact that a Republican puts out a bill and every Democrat votes against it because it came from a Republican. And I'm sick of a Democrat putting out a bill and every Republican votes against it because it came from a Democrat. And that's just BS. It's got to stop. I know that I'm not going to change the whole culture, but if one person can get elected as an independent to the state house, it may send a small message. Um, obviously, I'm going to have to pick who to caucus with and, you know, that sort of thing. But um, I just I'm sick of it. Um, you know, I, I support who I support for elective office in Rhode Island because I like the person and because of what they've done for my community. So I like Dan McKee for governor, even though he's a Democrat. And I like Alan Fung for Congress, even though he's a Republican. And I like them because I've established a relationship with them. They've done things for Westerly. They paid attention to Westerly. They've helped my community. Therefore, I support them. I'm not going to blindly say, well, I'm going to support that guy or that woman because they happen to be a Democrat or they happen to be a Republican. So mm -hmm. it gives I feel great freedom being an independent. I don't have any party line. I don't have any party money either, but I don't have any I don't have any party line and I don't have anyone pulling my strings. I mm -hmm. don't have any of these these organizations that like fund everybody, you know, and you owe them a vote kind of thing. Screw that. I don't do it. Absolutely. Well, it's funny. Westerly, a lot of people in Rhode Island uh, will probably live in the state their whole life and never go to rest Westerly, which is very unfortunate because Westerly is an amazing town. You know, I live in Charlestown, so and 
is kind of uh, incredible because I've met people in like Northern Rhode Island that have never been to Westerly. And I'm just like, how? It's just it's it's a hidden gem of Rhode Island, you know, Westerly, Charlestown and parts of South Kingstown, you know. Um, and, and I know that some of our residents want to keep it hidden. And that's yeah. totally cool. My, my yeah. job is my job is tourism in the summertime with the Musquamica Business Association. But um, that's what I've done over the years. I've had a relationship with Don Kachiri, with Link Chafee, maybe not so much with Gina, definitely with Dan McKee, who I affectionately used to call Lieutenant Dan when he was the lieutenant governor. In fact, just this morning, <laughs> as we're doing this podcast, uh, Dan was the governor was down at speaking to our annual MBA meeting, and then we dedicated the bike pedestrian path that we created down at the beach. Um, I, I've I invite these people, regardless of political party, to our district so that they can see what we have to offer. Maybe they have to pack a lunch. Maybe they have to pack a suitcase to get here. I don't know. But I can say yeah. that since I've since I've been in charge of certain things in our area, uh, different, you know, the business association, whatever, being on the town council, not in charge of the town council. Um, I just invite, hey, governor, hey, lieutenant governor, hey, congressman, hey, senator, come to Westerly, see what we have to offer. Westerly generates a ton of money in hotel tax, meal tax, all that. And so does Charlestown. So does South Kingstown. And we don't get our fair share back. Mm -hmm. And that's what I've been fighting for is to get our fair share. Hey, we need trash cans at the state beach. This is really stupid. Carry in, carry out. No one is carrying a dirty diaper back to Hartford, Connecticut. Forget about it. So give us some dumpsters. They did. Took me a while. Got it done. Those are the kind of things we do. But you're right. I um, I DJ at the Windjammer for fun on the weekends in the summer. And I always ask the audience, the people, where are you from? Make some noise if you're from Connecticut. Yay, Massachusetts. Yay, New York. Yay. Rhode Island, crickets. <laughs> you're right. You're right. A lot of Rhode Islanders do yeah. not come down. Even people in Western are like, hey, I'll see you after Labor Day, Kaz. Yeah. I get it. I get it. I get it. It's fine. But thank God we have tourists because it provides jobs. Where would all the kids in our high schools work in the summer if it wasn't for the tourism? And yeah. it keeps our taxes, keeps our taxes low. I mean, Westerly's got one of the lowest tax rates. I, I sell real estate and I, I sold a house the other day to a couple from New Jersey. And uh, the taxes on the house are like, I don't know, $4,800 a year. And they're like, Jesus, our house is assessed for the same thing in New Jersey. We pay 32000 wow. and, and, and it ain't as nice of an area as we live in. Let me tell no. you that. No, no. Absolutely. No not. offense, New Jersey. No offense, New Jersey. Yeah. But, you know, honestly, we have we have such a beautiful place. And and, it, and it's about a balance. It's keeping a balance, quality of life, mm -hmm. making it affordable, um, protecting the environment, but also having a place people can live. It's it's not easy to balance those things. If people run and they say, um, you know, I, I, I'm running to protect the environment. OK, but then what are you going to do about affordable housing? Cause you're gonna have to cut down a couple trees. Right. So you have to, you have to balance all that. You have to balance open space, housing, the environment. Uh, it's, it's like three legs of a stool. It's not a single leg. And that's part of, you know, when you have, when you've done it for a long time and you have a little bit of experience and I do, um, you're able to have that balance. You're able to do projects that, that are able to balance it all out. And we could talk about that after too. Yeah. So, uh, so we were just talking about your book, now let's move over to uh, the documentary that you directed. I actually watched the first few minutes of it uh, with the Westerly which, Chorus. Which, doc which documentary? Oh, the chorus. Okay. Yes. So the one that's on your website. Uh, and yep. if you want to talk a little bit about that. 
Yeah, well, so I did two documentaries. One was the first one was like 2008. And I did I did both of these with my friend Chris Walsh, who's like the master editor. He's the master filmer. Um, so the first one I did was on a group called Chad and Jeremy. So back in the 60s, when the Beatles came to America, there was the British invasion. So it was the Beatles, the Stones, the Who, mm -hmm. and then anybody that had long hair and a British accent. And Chad and Jeremy <laughs> were one of those groups that came over. They were on Batman. They were on the Dick Van Dyke show. They were on Johnny Carson. They were on everything. And they had their two or three years and their few hits. And then they went away for a long time. Then they came back, reunited and, you know, did the nostalgia thing. So I did a documentary on their life story, which was really fun. And it took like a couple of years of my life to do it. But I, I was able to tell this story and meet these amazing people from like, you know, music history. So fast forward a few years later, um, I always thought um, that the chorus of Wesley needed its story told. I mean, you have 200 volunteer voices. You have kids starting at age eight up to age 90, whatever, singing. You had this amazing guy, George Kent, who who at age 19 became the organist and choir master at Christ Church, and then three years later expanded that into a concert choir, which became the community chorus and then the chorus of Westerly. Thousands of people have gone through the ranks of that chorus, and now Andrew Howell has taken over for the last decade with the chorus, and he's just as amazing, and, and grew up in the chorus and, and was trained by Mr. Kent at URI and whatever. So I thought the story had to be told. I mean, these, this is a chorus that's sung at Westminster Abbey, uh, St. Peter's in Rome. Uh, they've toured the world. They've been to Prague and Vienna and England and uh, Italy, and they're going to France next year. They, we, have, uh, we have just, it, it's, there is no organization like the Chorus of Westerly anywhere between Boston and New York. You've got to go to a big city to see something like this. And, and, and the fact that it's all volunteer singers and that you've got eight-year-olds singing the masterworks, Bach, Beethoven, you know, Tchaikovsky, uh, all these. And I said, and, and then there's this beautiful camp that the kids always went to in New Hampshire. And I just wanted to tell the story of, of what this chorus was. So it took four years and probably $100,000 of raising money because you had to pay all these orchestra union fees and all this stuff. And we filmed over a period of two years. We interviewed all the players. We got archival footage. And I think the finished product is awesome. We, we won laurels in the New York Independent Film Festival. We were in two film festivals in New York. We were in the Rhode Island Film Festival. Um, it was during the pandemic, so we actually premiered it at the drive-in because we, <laughs> we couldn't premiere it in a theater like I wanted to. Yeah, yep. Um, it was a labor of love. And the chorus of Westerly is probably if, if there's things besides my family that shaped me it's george kent and the chorus of westerly um just what it instills in you from a young age a sense of of belonging a sense of respect a sense of community uh, seeing a project from start to completion you know you start out with some notes on a page and you work in your section and then you put it together with the rest of them. And then you put it together with an orchestra and then you do it in front of an audience. There's nothing. It's, it's an amazing thing to watch my 12 year old daughter. And I look down and see her at the other part of the, you know, on the risers when I'm up in the back in the bass section now. And I look down and there she is. And she's like singing in Latin with a 90 piece orchestra. And we're all doing this together. And it's like, it's, it's such a, it's such a cool thing. 
and the familial relationships, you know, the mm-hmm. several generations that do this. And then we talk about that in the documentary. It's like grandpa, daughter, granddaughter, three generations, you know, in a, in the group. So I just think it's just, and it's, I mean, everyone, I think around our area in, you know, Westerly, Pawkatuck, Charlestown, Hopkinton, I mean, everybody's probably been to summer pops in the park, you know, with the orchestra and the fireworks and all that. And that's a part of what the chorus does. But but what they do the rest of the year is pretty amazing, too. So this documentary is on the Chorus of Westerly's website. It's on caswellcook.com. Um, maybe you'll put a link to it in the podcast. But I would say Absolutely. It's, it's, it's a great watch. And uh, it was fun to direct. It was fun to edit. It was fun to produce with Chris Walsh and with the chorus. And, um, yeah, it was one of those things. It was a passion of mine to get that done. And and there it is. It's 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 a, it's historic. It's, it's good for history because someone, this guy named Oren Jacoby had done a documentary on the chorus, kind of following them through like one concert from, from the, from the camp in the summer with the kids all the way through the rehearsals to the actual night of the show It was done in black and white. It was kind of an avant-garde thing. I think it was done in maybe 1975, 76. I may have been one. I don't know. So we watched that and we actually used some clips from it, but to be able to do one, you know, 40 something years later, and bring it all up to date uh, was cool. So that's that's it's called uh, mostly music, the journey of the chorus of Westerly, and uh, I I recommend it highly. And 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 actually thousands of people have seen it, and uh, PBS aired it many times over the past uh, six months. So it's been on PBS, which is really a thrill. Great, yeah. I mean, from the from the first ten minutes that I watched of it, it looked very professionally made and and very well done. So congratulations on that. It looks very great. And I think I'm, I'm probably going to watch it, uh, at some point I'll watch the whole thing. Cool. Yeah. Uh, so let's move on to the next thing. Uh, well, there's a few other things, but, um, let's talk about, you said you were in a band, the beach band. Yeah. Uh, yeah. You know, I always wanted to be in a band. Um, I'm really no good. I'm kind of a crappy lead singer and keyboard player, but I surround myself with good people. So I do this, not to digress, but actually this year is the 25th anniversary of this play I do called Guy Fawkes Bonfire Night. It's a British holiday. This guy tried to blow up Parliament. They caught him, tortured him, executed him. You know, great British stuff from 1605. Typical stuff, yeah. Yeah, (laughs) kind of like the Mel Gibson movie Braveheart, you know. Oh, great movie, yeah. Yeah, so so Guy Fawkes tried to blow up Parliament. Uh, they used his face as the mask for Anonymous in that movie V for Vendetta. That's Guy Fawkes. Oh, um, okay. Yeah, that mask. And and when you say, hey, you see that guy over there? You know, that there that's where the term came from, Guy Fawkes. So Fawkes was one of like 12 that tried the plot to blow up the king in parliament. And they caught him. So, you know, I think like the Scottish probably look at it as oh, Fox is a hero. He tried to liberate them. And the British look at Fox as a traitor. So I was in England and I saw this, the event, the bonfire. I remember the guy at the, uh, the Andrea Mesquamic said, what can we do in the fall that we get people here? I said, well, we can have a bonfire and nobody in America celebrates it, but let's do Guy Fox night. And I remember the first year we did it. This was, <laughs> it's actually a priest at one of the local churches. He said, Oh, why are you doing this anti-Catholic play against the Pope? And I'm like, Oh, come on. This is like a spoof. And 400 years later, I mean, come on, too soon? You know, it's like, yeah, it's like, come on. Knock it <laughs> so, and we went that guy was struck. probably alive back when that happened. Yeah. So anyway, fast forward 25 years, we do this play that is so hilarious. 
it is Monty Python meets the Beatles meets Chevy Chase and throw in some Caddyshack. And it makes no sense. Um, we have all these actors. We have the uh, Kentish Guard, Fife and Drum, the Wesley Morris dancers, like 30 actors. My band is in it playing songs from the 60s and 70s, which has nothing to do with 1605. <laughs> and for some reason, 500 people show up. Wow. And everybody in, everybody in the cast, we do one rehearsal and they read from the scripts, which makes it way more funny. And I basically steal from everything, including the chorus of Westerly's Twelfth Night, which they did for many, many years. It's been put on ice for a while, but for about 40 years, they did something called the Celebration of Twelfth Night. So it's just this kind of medieval, funny, ridiculous, laughable, good time. And it's coming up October 1st, and it's the 25th anniversary, which means I don't know how I got that old, but I did. But that's when I started my band was we started it with back in, I think, 2001. I said, maybe I can put some musicians together and we can sing like a moody blues song like Nights in White Satin, which kind of sounds classical. And it just evolved from there. And then I used to put on these big concerts. Um, we had like Davy Jones from the Monkees and Jefferson's Starship. And we had a couple of American Idols. And I would do these big concerts at the beach. And I said, well, if I'm going to put all this work together and raise 50 or 60 or 70 grand, I'm playing. <laughs> I get an hour or a half hour. So we called it the Beach Bums, which morphed into the Beach Band. And then we started a little side project called Soul Stone, which is the one we're recording the album with. And then all during that time, I was also a DJ because I used to work in radio, uh, WJJF in Hope Valley and WPJB in Wakefield. So I was doing radio and then I became a DJ like at uh, for weddings and things. And at the Andrea, and I was there for like 10 years. It was like a part time fun gig on the weekends. And then I had kids and grew up and I stopped doing it except for weddings. And then a couple of years ago, the guy who owns the Windjammer said, you, should, you, should, you were pretty good at that wedding. You should DJ. So now it's like last year and this year, I, I think I had 25 dates at the Windjammer this summer DJing and people come and they dance and these people that show up. This this one group of girls from, showed up. They're like 25. Like, we heard all about you. I said, where'd you hear about me? From my mother who used to go to the Andrea in 1995 so you get like a couple generations it's hilarious so the owner of the windjammer said well your band could play here sometime um and i i love their peel and eat shrimp so she's like you're gonna have to call it caswell cook and the peel and eat all-star band so we just did this hilarious thing this summer where we had t-shirts got shrimp <laughs> and people are running around wearing t-shirts to say caswell cook and the it's, it's so stupid that it's hilarious but the other night we did a we did a benefit um, a show called Blues for the Bridges, even though we're singing Yacht Rock, not blues, with our friend Bobby Christina and a couple other bands. And uh, we were raising money uh, and getting signatures so that we can get barriers placed on the bridges in Rhode Island, like Mount Hope and uh, the um, Newport Bridge for suicide prevention. So that was, you know, something that my band did that we were able to do for a good cause. Um, I guess over 30 people have jumped to their death off the Newport Bridge alone in recent years. So the whole idea is to get netting underneath. And so, you know, a, a fun, stupid thing like the band, which is ridiculous, uh, you know, can sometimes be used for, for good stuff, too. So, yeah. So the whole being in a band or being a DJ thing is really what I do for stress relief. And to let my hair down and quite honestly, make a little, um, sorry, my phone got, um, uh, make a no little problem. extra money. 
you know, make a little extra money on the weekends and stuff. So, you know, it's fun. Great. Uh, So man of many talents. And to get on top of that, you had already mentioned this. You're a realtor as well. Uh, So if you want to explain sort of why you decided to get your realtor's license and uh, get into the industry. Yeah, it's been about three years and I worked for um, um, Berkshire Hathaway Home Services. And uh, I, I just thought, well, you know, I know a lot of people in town, pretty good name recognition, um, kind of understand our communities. I, I've pretty much only sold houses in Charlestown and Westerly uh, and Hopkinton and Richmond. So just, you know, this this area, because I know the economy, I know the taxes, I know the municipal services. Um, so it kind of works. So I took the real estate test um, and uh, went to work for Berkshire Hathaway. It fits in with the 10 other jobs I have. Um, I, I kind of lead a non-traditional life when it comes to, you know, employment. I'm mostly self-employed with all these different jobs, except for the Musquamica Business Association. So I just thought it was a great thing to get into. And, um, you know, I do it part-time and um, it's, it's interesting to meet new people that want to move to Westerly or to Charlestown. And, and uh, I, I really enjoy it. It's, um, it's something that I, uh, didn't know if I would like, to be honest. Um, but finding people a house is a, is a, is a cool thing. So, mm-hmm. um, I'm happy with doing that. Uh, can we pause one minute? I just need to make a phone call. No problem. Just hang on one sec. I got, um, just... all right. So I'm getting my real estate license. Um, and I'm wondering how many times did it take you to pass the exam? If you remember, I think I passed it. The... I don't remember. Maybe I took it twice. I might have yeah. failed the first one. Yeah. Yeah. Why did because you fail the first I one? I think, yeah, I think uh, like the fail rate in Rhode Island for real estate license, like the first time, like over 60% of the people that take it fail at the first but I, time. I don't feel so, I don't feel so bad. Oh you know, yeah. It's, it's, it's crazy. It, they, they, you got to fill in the little circle and it's like, I'm not really good at like, you know, figuring out acreage in my head, um, but <laughs> I just Google plat lot, you know, so yeah, I think exactly. I might have, I might have not, I might have had to go to, I might have had to take it a second time, but the good news is I was able to get my license. Yeah, I, it's, uh, See, now, it's now a real, a real politician would have uh, said, oh, I passed that with flying colors, man. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's not an easy exam. They try to trick you. So, um, but yeah, real, real estate is, is uh, a very interesting industry. I enjoy it as well. And I look forward to possibly having a career in the future. Um, but yeah, so something else I found on your website is a Haven Express yeah. restaurant. So if you want to talk about that, that'd be great. Yeah. So down in Musquamacate, um, by the Weekapog Breachway, um, I started working at a place called the Seafood Haven at the time uh, for my business partner, Bob Barber. Um, actually, my first job for him was in Charlestown on the corner of Route 1 and 216, where Quanty Bait and Tackle is. Back then, it was called um, <clears throat> the Cozy Corner Restaurant. So I worked there in high school for a season, and then Bob moved down to the beach. So I worked for Bob starting in 1993 when I was 19 years old. And then around 1999, we became business partners. And we uh, tried a couple other places. We had a place called Captain Zach's for a few years. I think the septic system failed and the landlord wouldn't put a new one in. And then we had a place called the Breachway Market for a few years. But Seafood Haven, we had for 25 years. 
And in 2017, unfortunately, our landlord died. Ah. And we always knew that his son was going to take over, and that was the end. So we were sad. Uh, Seafood Haven ended, but we lucked out because right across the street, actually on the beach at the Dunes Park, there's they have a, a it's like public parking. It's also kind of a trailer park situation. They have a concession stand right on the beach. So we just decided, well, we'll call it the Haven Express. You know, as Seafood Haven, it's, we don't have that anymore. The other thing is it's it's a lot easier for us because, I mean, my business partner, Bob, he's spry, but he's 80. And, you know, working from nine in the morning till 10 at night, seven mm-hmm. days a week, all summer is a long day. The Haven Express is easier because we're open 11 to four. When they're, when the park is open, we can be open. It's Memorial Day to Labor Day. So it's it really uh, is. And it's it's a lot more fun to literally serve your food and your they literally come up to the window on the beach. It's kind of cool. So that's that's our little summertime, more of a concession stand than a restaurant. But we do have great lobster rolls and things like that. And you know, I've I've always run small businesses, but and we and and I love employing people too. I mean, at the seafood haven, we probably employ twenty five people a season. Now we're probably at like seven or eight. Um, between that and the drive-in i've got like 10 you know and then the mba with our road crew and stuff so there's a lot of people we employ yeah um yeah very cool so uh, it's it's very interesting to hear all these different sort of things that you're involved with like how did you know when you know when you were growing up that you're like you know i don't want to work a nine to five i want to you know be my own boss or do my own thing. Like what made you realize that? Cause this is amazing to be involved in this many things and, and be good at this many things. Well, whether I'm good at them or not is a, is, is a, well, is it a, seems like you're pretty good. You're successful in a lot of things that you've done. So I think when I worked, when I went to uh Disney world, yeah, I was like, this sucks, man. I mean, it's, it sucked. Mm-hmm. It's like, I am not wearing this uniform and I like it, it was terrible. And, like you, someone would say, where's uh, where's the bathroom? It's over there. Oh, you can't point. You must say it's over there. And I'm just like, I just can't live like that. <laughs> you know, I guess it's some language. It's like a swear. If you point, I have no clue what they were talking about, you know? And then, then they're like, uh, the whole thing is there's only one Mickey. And I'm like, no, but seriously, how many guys running around in a Mickey suit or, you know what I mean? No, there's only one Mickey. And on every test they give you is how many Mickeys are there? One. And I just was like, yeah, I just, I can't, I can't, I'm not saying I've never worked for the man. I worked for WERI radio. Yep. Um, I obviously have worked for the Meswamica business association for 23 years, but I did create it, but I report to a board of directors. They have the power to hire and fire me. Um, you know, I have bosses. I mean, geez, I've been on the town council 16 years. I'd say the people are my boss. They could throw me out, but they've elected me eight times. So that's a good job reference. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, I have a boss at Berkshire Hathaway, but it, but you're right. It does allow a little bit of a freedom. It also means that, you know, when times are tough, they're tough. Yeah. There's been some, there's been some Januaries when there ain't no money, man. It's like, you know, I, I make more money in the summer, obviously, between the restaurant, DJing, all the stuff going on that generates my income. But it can get lean in the, in the wintertime. So self-employment is not for the faint of heart. Um, no. And, and there is something to be said about having a quote unquote real job, you know, where you you are guaranteed that paycheck every week. Uh, that's. Yeah. But I've never had I've never had it. So I guess I don't miss it. Yeah. I mean, it's 
it's something that I'm glad that, you know, I worked, I mean, I'm only 21, um, you know, and I feel like in high school, I kind of thought like, you know, I kind of want to have my own business. And uh, I think working at a particular company made me realize that I'm not going to say, you know, what company, but working typical, you know, cashier, dishwasher, things like that. I'm like, you know, first of all, I should probably go to college and figure things out there. And then when I was at college, I really didn't enjoy it either. But it, even if I make less money doing what I want to do, I'm okay with that. You know, it and being happy and, and just satisfied with what I'm doing and the things that I'm doing, it's so much better than just going to work nine to five, doing the same thing every day over and over and over again, you know, and, and being a politician or realtor, sure, you have bosses, but you don't, you don't have to do those things. You're helping people, you know, and it's, it's just an amazing thing to do and, and a feeling, you know, so it's just, uh, it's a real accomplishment to be involved in this many things. So congratulations on, well, on this. Yeah. yeah. And I mean, it, it looks better on paper than in reality, but you know, and also the, the other thing is, you know, once I had kids, it changes things a little yeah. bit, you know, you yeah. gotta, you, you gotta take care of your kids. You gotta pay for them. It's one thing when I was 20 something and single and was able to just, you know, I don't care. I let's, let's go try living here for, you know, mm -hmm. a few months or let's go to Key West in the winter and do something. Yeah. I mean, it was, it's more freedom and maybe I'll have that freedom again when, when the kids go, go to wherever they go after high school, whether it's college yeah. or to a job or whatever they do. Hopefully they don't live at my house for the rest of their life. Um, <laughs> but maybe, maybe they will. Uh, yeah. But yeah, so it's, it's, it, I think you're at the perfect age where you can try all that. I mean, you know, everybody was forced to go to college for a whole generation. You're not going to make it, kid, if you don't go to college. You know, that's what you heard. Mm -hmm. And now you're hearing, Jesus, I, 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 we can't find anybody that does trades. You know, try to find an electrician, yep. a plumber, a carpenter, someone that has a skill, <laughs> yep. not a degree, not a degree in, you know, how to uh, train rabbits or something. I mean, we're talking like, <laughs> like, you know, a real, a real, uh, a real skill. Yeah, absolutely. Which, you know, is something is something I'm lacking. I mean, I went to school and um, I went to college. Um, I never went past four years. I actually still never got my degree. So I went to four years of Boston University. And because I went to London for a semester in uh, D.C. for a semester, I missed a French class. So it's like 25 years later. Someday I'm going to take that French class. So they'll actually give me the diploma. But anyway. They got my money and they got yeah. my four years of my life. But what I'm saying is, you know, it's like the toilet breaks. I don't really know what the hell I'm doing. I wish I did have a trade too. I wish, I wish in high school we learned more trades. And I think Cheriho does a good job with that. Wesley's, yep. you know, trying to trying to catch up with that. But we've got to have skills. We don't have any skills um, that we're passing on like we used to in apprenticeships and things like that. So, you know, that's important too. That's that's one of the great things like Wesley Education Center. Um, we were just yeah. talking about this morning with the governor, you know, like training people like EBs, like electric boat. We, we need people, but they're not, we, we need people that have a skill. Okay. Well, where can I go to get trained? I mean, that's the kind of thing that I support big time, you know? Yeah. You know, uh, and I like to, you know, way backtrack now moving on to a separate topic, but you mentioned you had interned in London and yeah. uh, the, you know, for the British parliament and, you know, it's something very, you know, uh, alien to me because I don't know a, a whole lot about how the British Parliament works, and maybe that's a failure of public school systems. But um, 
<laughs> well, we're American. Um, we're not British, so you know, no, exactly. We all, but, speak, we all speak English because of the you know where the country was, you know, the colonies or whatever. But I mean, yeah. this they speak English in a lot of countries. But uh, yeah, I mean, parliamentary form of government is way different than a democracy. Uh, that are uh, uh, um, I'm losing my train of thought here. But a parliamentary form of government is obviously different. Um, so in England, uh, they elect you elect your MP, your member of parliament, which I would say is kind of like the House of Representatives. Mm -hmm. But you don't elect your prime minister. So it would kind of be like us electing people to Congress and then whoever they chose for Speaker of the House would also be the president. Hmm. So like in that case, Nancy Pelosi would be our president. Yeah. I'm not passing no judgment. No on that. comment. No comment. Sure. Yeah. Sure. No comment. You know, uh, but whatever, you know, but that's what it would be. So and then they have the House of Lords, but they took away a lot of the power from the House of Lords. Um, and they don't they, I don't even know if they have veto power and the king and the queen or the queen and now the king. They don't really have any power either. I, I think Chevy Chase said it best. We said, what does the queen do? He said, well, she queens and vacuums. No. <laughs> 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 I, 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 I'm a, I'm a monarchist. I love the queen. I was, I just, I, I got to see her once from a balcony waving years ago. And, um, I'm as enamored with sort of the British monarchy as I think the whole world has been in, in recent mm -hmm. weeks because of the queen. Um, but in reality, it's, it's the house of, uh, it's, it's parliament, the MPs and the prime minister and the ministers, those that's where the power is. Whereas here we, I think we do have more checks and balances. You know, we, we have a, our president. So in England, the queen or the king now does the ceremonial stuff and the prime minister does the governing stuff in America. The president does both. We don't have the ceremony. The ceremonial part is wound into, you know, cause we don't do royalty here. Um, although they, they, the Kennedys were like royalty, I guess. Right. Um, <laughs> Uh, and the and the Bush dynasty and you know whatever, but we we have our families that are even the Clintons probably, but but we don't have royalty obviously, so so it's different. Um, I like obviously America's uh, democracy better, but uh, it is interesting how the British do things. Yeah, so it was fun to be over there. I mean, I worked for this uh, guy named John Marshall. He was a member of Parliament. He was a conservative member of Parliament from a place called Hendon South. Mm -hmm. So I would take the tube, the 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 underground the tube. from. <laughs> from uh i lived in south kensington near the royal Albert hall and i would get the get on the tube mm -hmm. and uh and go to go to the go to his office um he took me once to parliament to have dinner and then i got to watch uh like prime minister's question time which is their big thing where they yell at each other they never speak to each other in parliament they're not allowed to clap either that's why they're always like here 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 they can't clap it's not allowed and they can't speak to each other. So they can't insult each other. They have to go through the speaker. So they'll say, Madam Speaker, please tell the right honorable gentleman that he's an ass. <laughs> it's very, it's very, you know, it's very proper, you know. Yeah. In America, it's a lot different. You know, you got you got your Trumps and Bidens and Hillary's and you know, they they just yell at each other. So they, they yeah. yell at you know. So it's different. So it's more civilized over there. But um, but yeah, so that's I mean, that's you, you just got Caswell's 101 on the difference between Britain and America. Well, yeah, I mean, that's great. I mean, could and I mean, not I mean, I'd love to talk more about it. But what what is the difference between a conservative like you had mentioned, a conservative in parliament and a conservative in the United States? Like, are there differences or are they pretty similar? 
there's more parties in England than there are yeah. in America. I mean, America has parties, but Republicans and Democrats dominate. But we do mm -hmm. have libertarians, which occasionally will get somebody elected to a town council somewhere. And we got the Green Party, which, you know, gets a few percent in a vote. But they don't count for anything once the election's over because the winner takes all. In England, the winner does not take all. So your majority party wins. So say the conservatives, like they are now, they're in power. The people on the the loyal opposition is a coalition of labor, which is like the Democratic Party. They have liberal Democrats. Um, what the hell was that? It was Patty Ashdown was the, I totally forgot. Then the, the Irish, there was, there was Sinn Féin. There's different groups socialist democrats whatever and and they'll they if there's more of them and they will they will form a coalition government mm -hmm. and they have greater numbers than the other side they can flip parliament and pick a prime minister and, and that's happened there's been coalition governments before but if they have a situation where they have an all-out majority they're in charge the, the other difference between england and, and of course we're way off the 38th district here but the other it's fine that's it's okay podcast. Yeah. But the other difference is, is there's no nice way to get out of office in America. You got two terms as president. Uh, even if you don't get reelected on November, whatever, you don't have to leave office till January. And it's very nice. And you get time to say goodbye. Thank your staff. Give speeches. Do a, a victory lap, whatever you want. And then the day of the event, it's a big pomp and circumstance. And you turn over the reins to the new president in England. You lose an election. You're out 12 hours later. Your crap is moved out of 10 Downing Street. You go over to see the queen, hand her the keys, or now King Charles, hand him the keys, and you're done. It's mm -hmm. it's it's very and there's and and you can be out at any time. Your party can just say, We're done with you. So there's no nice way for a prime minister to retire. I think Churchill was able to do it his second time around. Um, Tony Blair was able to name his time. At Thatcher, not so much. She had done 11 years, but she had gotten into some trouble and her party was mounting in a, an offense against her that she wouldn't have won so she chose to step down but most of the time british prime ministers have to resign and it's not mm -hmm. glorious and they don't treat them nice once they're out they don't care about them like we we revere our former presidents in america mm -hmm. they don't <laughs> yeah well sort of like what recently happened with boris johnson right yeah he he's out gone. yeah yeah all right. So you mentioned District 38. So why don't we go all the way from across the pond back to District 38? And a pretty vague question. Can I, can I, tell, you, can I tell you a funny story, though, I heard? Sure. So when you're down in Wasquamacate, Block Island is 12 miles off the coast. You can mm -hmm. see Block Island very clearly. So one of the restaurants at the beach, they said this customer came down and said, oh, my God, I cannot believe how close it is. And the person with him said, what? And she pointed or he pointed across and said, England. <laughs> no way. No, <laughs> my God. It's a, it's a true story. Oh, my gosh. I don't know what to say about that. That's a, that had to be a joke, right? Am I missing no. something? No. Oh, my gosh. Wow. <laughs> but we need to fix our education system, folks. Mm, yes, definitely. Okay. So, um, all right, <laughs> back to District Thirty Eight. I don't mean to All throw right. off, throw you off now. No, that was just that's oh, wow. I've never heard somebody say that. All right, so what? Let's just go over something pretty vague here, but something that's important. What are like the main issues that you would probably focus on uh, within Westerly, and then obviously when you're in state senate, you know, within the state that you'd be focusing on if you get elected. 
Yeah, and it's different because it's it's westerly, and now this district also encompasses Charlestown and South mm-hmm. Kingstown. And right now we have two candidates that are from westerly, one candidate from Charlestown, and none of us uh, live in South Kingstown. Um, so it's it's a different tact for me because it's not, I I have to expand what I what I my reach and what I've been doing and where I focus. You know, people run for office and they say, oh, the biggest issue is you know gun control, or the biggest issue is abortion, or the biggest issue is you know, what they use, they kind of go off these national talking points. And let me bring it down to a story that someone told me a couple months ago about what Senator Algier did one time. This gentleman was a Korean War veteran and he had passed away and his family wanted to have the full military burial, you know, the 21 gun salute, the whole thing. But in order to do that, and bear in mind, the funeral is just a few days away, they needed a certificate of honorable discharge. And they couldn't find their dad's certificate of honorable discharge. So who did they call? Senator Algier. Who did Senator Algier get in touch with? Senator Reid, because of his chairmanship and what he does in D.C. Within 24 hours, they had the certificate delivered to the constituent. I bet you the people running for office uh, for the first time don't realize that those are the kind of things that happen every single day when you're a senator, when you're a rep, when you're a counselor. And it's not just this, you know, one time in your career vote on abortion. And that's important. But it's about the fact that Westerly Charlestown and South Kingstown are the furthest physically away from Providence. So they need the loudest voice to get their fair share back. Providence has no problem taking our tax money, but to reinvest it into our infrastructure, into our roads, into our water, into our sewer. It takes a voice. And I think Dennis Algier has been a good voice to get those things done. If you look at Route 1 just on Granite Street here in Westerly, the curbing's getting replaced. It's getting all pulled up. That's his parting gift to the people of Westerly is redoing that part of Route 1. Those are state projects. They take a lot of effort. So my thing to answer your question would be to bring back our district's fair share of the money so that it stops being sucked up there. And how do you do that? You do that because you have relationships. So I can pick up the phone and I can call or text the governor and say, governor, we need this. I can do the same thing with the lieutenant governor. I can do the same thing with DEM director Gray and go on so on down the list. So when you need something from DOT, you don't have to go through. Your senator should know how to get to those people and be able to advocate and get them to do the job they're supposed to do right here, whether it's a dead deer on the road or whether it's, um, you know, uh, devastation from a hurricane that needs immediate relief. And so I have a track record of that. You know, there's a video online I watched the other day where I stood with uh, Senator Algier and Representative Azanaro uh, with Senator Jack Reed. And we talked about dredging Winnipeg Pond. You know, dredging our salt ponds is a big issue and replenishing our beaches and planting eelgrass. So I stood there and we said, we're going to get this done. And how do we get it done? I had put aside through my council money in our local budget, which then gave us a state grant, which then gave us a federal match for Senator Reid to bring the majority of the money in. Took a few years. We got the pond dredge. We planted the eelgrass. We put the sand on the beach. That's how you that's how you do the job, I think. And that's as a senator, that's what I would do. And I wouldn't need on the job training. I'd be ready day one. I've done this already. I do this all the time. Uh state local partnerships you know you can get a certain amount of money from your town you leverage that we just we just dedicated a bike pedestrian path today here in town and it was because i was able to get leverage a three hundred fifty thousand dollar grant that was supposed to be for a bike path that was about to disappear and go back into the state coffers and i said hang on can we keep that money here please and here's the project that's ready to go so 
I think it's important to be able to partner with your other leaders so that your local senator and your local rep can get things accomplished for your district. So paving the roads, fixing the sidewalks are huge, huge issues. I think that's the first thing people see. The second thing is our is the state formula on education funding and getting our fair share of that money. I mean, look, we're, we the state has no problem taking over schools in Providence and just pouring millions and millions and millions and millions of dollars into it. Um, but what do we get? What do we get? How much are they giving back to Westerly and Cherahoe? You know, and, and so you've got to fight for it. And I, I've been a part of this for a long time. I remember when we, uh, one of our town managers years ago, when I was kind of a novice at this, uh, we went to the League of Cities and Towns. And I think it was funny because at that time, McKee was the mayor of Cumberland. That's when I first met him, probably 10 years ago, more. And they reconfigured the education formula. And Westerly has, over the last several years, gotten a little more of its fair share. Um, the other thing is uh, the issue that's really been talked about a lot is coastal access, uh, public access. And, you know, I'm the only person, I mean, I, my candidate, my fellow candidates are great people, but they've never, they've never held elective office in their life and they've never, you know, actually paved a road, for instance. So they can take pictures next to a breachway and say, I, I'm for public access. I'll tell you what I've done. We brought in CRMC. And along the uh, breachway in Weekapog, they opened it up, they delineated it, and they, they've said this is where the public access is. They put the boulders in. We've got the parking lots. At one point, we didn't even have a parking lot on the right-hand side where the Dunes Park is, which is kind of funny because that's where I am now. But years ago, that was cut out and returned to the fishermen for the fishermen's parking lot. Um, I worked on the harbor management plan and voted for it, which identified every right-of-way in the town of Westerly. There's a couple that are disputed. One of them is this place called Spring Avenue in Weekapog. We had to send that to CRMC. It's been two years. They haven't given us an answer. That's an unfortunate one. We put, and I voted for, granite markers at every right-of-way on Atlantic Ave because people would move the signs. So we put granite posts in the ground that's carved right-of-way. Bluff Avenue in Watch Hill, you had a situation where half of the right-of-way was fenced off and being used as a private driveway for a house. I went down there a few weeks ago with uh, Sharon Ahern, who was one of the candidates before she lost, and the town manager. Within 24 hours, that chain link fence was removed. The bush was cut down. The sign was moved to the center saying public access, and it was opened. I have a record on shoreline access. These people can talk about it all they want. I've got a record. And yes, I would have voted for the Senate bill that says, instead of mean high tide, visible high tide. So the, I think that's an important issue, and that's my that's my stance and my record on that. I've also the only candidate that's actually created two public kayak launches in Westerly, where we had none, uh, and got the signage put up as well, and a place for them to drop off. Um, so you know, I think the differences in this race is, you know, there's there's three good people running um, for this office. It's down to three of us. Uh, I like them both. I think they're great people, but. Um, they're a little younger, they're a little greener, and I just don't think at this point in time we can really afford on-the-job training. I'm, I'm ready to go day one. I've done it. I've worked with these people. I know the people. I know how to get it done and how to bring it back, and I've done it as a town councilor. If you give me the opportunity to do it as a senator, I think I'll be able to do more, and I think if folks in Westerly and South Kingstown are saying, well, who is this guy, I can at least say, well, here's my track record in the town that I've been representing. And if you look at my record here, this is what I can do in Charlestown and South Kingstown if allowed.
Absolutely. Well, that's a, that's a great message. And so uh, the last question, we're going to come to the end and come to a close here. I ask every guest on my podcast is if you could leave one piece of advice to the listener, could be about business, life, politics, whatever you want it to be, what would that piece of advice be? Do something that's positive. Uh, there are thousands of people that live in every town. There's like 300 people that do everything. You know, you see, you see when you when you, when, you, when there's some kind of a, an event, when there's a fundraiser, when there's a cause, it's like the same people. And everybody else is like, ah, you know, I'm just I don't have time. Make time to do community service, whatever it may be, whether it's going out and helping pick up some litter, whether it's volunteering at the local animal shelter, whether it's going down and helping, you know, rake someone's rake a lawn at, at the armory or something, whatever it is. Help, help uh, my buddy Ken put the flags out on the streets during Veterans and Memorial Day. Those are all things that are public service. And it's so important for people to do that and to teach your kids to do it, to get them involved beyond the 10 hours or whatever it is that you have to, or 20 hours that you have to have to graduate high school. Beyond that, service above self should be something that we instill in everybody. So that's my advice is, is go out there and serve. So few people want to run for office and I get it. Who wants it? I mean, literally we, we get paid on the Wesley town council, $3,600 a year. That's public service that we, mm -hmm. we ain't doing it for the money. Let, let's just put it that way. It probably costs. And you shouldn't, money. you shouldn't do it for the money. Right. But what I'm saying is, is that we need more people to stand up and mm -hmm. do rather than just sort of be armchair warriors online and say, uh, you know, yeah, Absolutely. It's like, just, just do. So I've just always wanted to do. I don't know, like I said, if it's in my blood, whatever it is, it's in my DNA, but I want to do. And um, I think more people should do. <laughs> well said. You know, it, it, yeah, exactly. That's very well said. Well, I, I really appreciate you coming on and, and talking to me uh, and taking time out of your day. It's been a great conversation. I really appreciate it. Uh, well, thank you very much for having me and I appreciate what you're doing and you're getting involved and you're young and ready to go. So you absolutely. got your whole life ahead of you, kids. So just keep going, keep plugging, keep interviewing. Who knows where it'll lead to? Just ask. The worst people can say when you ask for an interview is they can say no. Yep. Yeah. And and that's our, that's happened to me a couple of times with uh with local people and uh Stefan Pryor never got back to me. He said he was gonna come on. So I think now it's official that he's not coming on. So <laughs> Well, he did lose. Yeah, exactly. I, I uh, get but, I get no's all the time. So, like, I've yep. interviewed really cool people on my on my show, like famous cool people. Yeah. But Robert Plant from Led Zeppelin came to Foxwoods a few weeks ago, and I said, "Let me just request it." No. Yeah. Yeah. They say no. Yeah. Yep. It's all right, but yeah. So, thank you very much again, uh, and thank you everybody for listening to this episode of Knowledge Is Power podcast. Make sure to follow us on uh, Instagram and subscribe to our YouTube channel now where this Zoom podcast will be uploaded uh, and two other episodes are up there right now. So whenever and now hopefully uh, throughout the rest of the podcast that I record will be video as well as audio. So thanks for listening, everybody. Also, make sure to leave us a uh, review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify or whatnot. Thanks, everybody. And I'll catch you in the next one.